0: Are listening to primary care perspectives a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm here today with Dr. Kristen Feemster, an attending in the Division of Infectious Diseases and director of research for the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And this is very appropriate that we're actually recording at the Department of Public Health because we are talking today about measles. I'm gonna start with a little bit of background since it may be since medical school that you actually thought about measles. So as a quick refresher, measles is characterized by a prodrome of fever and malaise, the three C's, cough, coryza, and conjunctivitis, sometimes the pathognomonic Koplik spots, followed by a maculopapular rash. The rash, which appears about 14 days after exposure, spreads from head to toe, but may not appear in the immunocompromised population. Measles can be prevented by the combination measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine, which the CDC recommends as a routine childhood immunization, starting with the first dose at 12 through 15 months of age, and the second dose at four through six years of age, or at least 28 days following the first dose. So Dr. Feemster, the measles vaccine was licensed in 1963. And measles was declared eradicated from the US in the year 2000. So why are we still hearing about measles outbreaks in the US in 2017?
1: Uh, Excellent question. So you're absolutely right. Measles was eliminated from the United States in 2000, which means really that we no longer had any new cases of measles here. And we achieved this largely because our overall immunization rates with measles containing vaccines were high enough to keep measles from spreading. But elimination in one place does not mean that there weren't cases in other places. Uh, And measles is certainly endemic in in many other countries. And so when that uh, happens, it's possible for measles to be reintroduced, so perhaps by a returning traveler who spent time in a place where measles still circulates. So if that that person gets infected and brings measles home, uh, he or she could infect others. So if there are other susceptible people, people who have not been vaccinated, for example, Mm -hmm. um, in their community, they could infect them. Uh, when everyone at home is vaccinated and a returning traveler uh, comes home, measles won't really go anywhere. It would just be a sporadic case. Mm-hmm. And, and largely, you know, even since elimination, we've continued to see sporadic cases. And the majority of those, at least until recently, uh, have been in you know, returning travelers. But let's say the returning traveler goes to a community where rates are not that high, so there are more susceptible individuals, then measles can spread and you can get an outbreak. And so yes, we have you know continued to see uh, occasional outbreaks uh, since that time, uh, since the time of elimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, And in general, there is always a risk of an outbreak when immunization rates dip below a certain level. And for a disease as contagious as measles, you need really high immunization rates. Mm -hmm.
0: And so, like you mentioned, we see some outbreaks here and there, and the most recent one in the news that we've heard about is in Minnesota. Could an
1: outbreak like that happen in Philadelphia? Uh, so yes, yeah, so the the uh, recent outbreak that you were referring to uh, w- took place uh, in an uh, immigrant community, in a Somali community, where there were many parents who had uh, decided not to have their children vaccinated uh, with the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine because of concerns uh, related to vaccine safety. So this was a large group of children in a, uh, you know, in a, in a close-knit community uh, who were susceptible to measles. And so when it, somebody infected um, came to that community an outbreak was able to occur. And so absolutely, uh, something like this could have potentially happened in Philadelphia. You know, As long as uh, there are communities within our city with low enough immunization rates, and the threshold is around 95%, which is really quite high, mm-hmm. uh, then a similar outbreak could take place. Uh, and there are certainly groups you know, around the region who, at least you know, maybe based upon uh, religious beliefs, uh, do not choose to vaccinate their children.
0: Mm-hmm. And much of what we've been talking about is about travelers and and immigrants, and we know that there are, like you said, measles in other countries like England, France, Germany, India, and the Philippines, to name a few, where they have large outbreaks. What's being done on a global scale to eradicate measles?
1: Uh, you know that's an excellent question. Uh, there has been some you know effort and discussion about uh, pursuing measles eradication at least globally, uh, in the same way that there is currently a, a global initiative to eradicate polio, mm-hmm. and you know really that's achieved by uh, ensuring high immunization rates. Uh, in communities around the world, and so I think as a first step, it's important to you know focus efforts on you know reasons for uh, under immunization in mm-hmm. places where measles is still endemic or where there are large, out- large outbreaks, mm-hmm. uh, and so in some instances this could be related to access. You know, MMR is a measles vaccine, so, you know, their live virus vaccine that requires certain. Uh, You know, know, storage uh, requirements. It can be difficult in some settings, but I think largely, and especially in some countries like England and France, where rates were previously much higher. Uh, lower immunization rates are related to vaccine hesitancy, and Mm -hmm. and that's certainly playing a role here in the United States as well. Uh, And so I think increasing immunization rates on a global scale will require addressing hesitancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vaccine hesitancy really has become uh, a global focus. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, the World Health Organization, their uh, strategic advisory group of experts on immunizations, uh, convened a vaccine hesitancy working group uh, that recently published a report entitled The State of Vaccine Confidence. Mm-hmm. And their goal really was to define hesitancy, to begin to understand the multiple factors that influence hesitancy uh, in, in regions across the world, um, around the world and to outline potential strategies. And, and we've had similar um, foci here. Our, um, the NVAC, or the National Vaccine Advisory Committee, also convened a vaccine hesitancy mm-hmm. work group. But I think that's really how we can begin to start Uh, thinking about reducing uh, rates of measles globally.
0: Hmm. So why should we care about measles? We've been talking about having these outbreaks, but why do we care? We know that subacute sclerosing panencephalitis is obviously a scary potential complication, but we also know that that's very rare. So what else should we worry about in children who develop measles?
1: So yes, measles infection is a characterized by fever and rash and it can certainly self-resolve, but about one in three children with measles will develop a complication. uh, And that can include pneumonia, and about 6% of of, uh, individuals' seizures uh, and uh, encephalitis, in about one in uh, 1,000 infected patients. And so, individuals who develop encephalitis can present with fever, neck stiffness, vomiting, uh, and sometimes convulsions, and a quarter of them, 25%, will have uh, Long-term neurologic sequelae. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that is an um, you know can be
0: um, yeah, it's pretty an important.
1: Yes, yeah, sig- significant morbidity and death can also occur after measles. So, the rates are around one to three in a thousand, and that's usually associated with either pneumonia or encephalitis, at least among the reported cases in the, the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, measles infection. You know, we don't have an antiviral medication to treat measles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, treatment generalize. The recommended treatment is actually vitamin A, which can help reduce risk for complications.
0: Hmm. Um, um, so tell us a little bit more about how measles is transmitted. You mentioned that it's very contagious. So what should we do if we have a patient in our office in whom measles is suspected? So what kind of precautions or room cleaning, and what should we do about our waiting rooms for primary care pediatricians?
1: Yes, yeah, so measles is transmitted via large respiratory droplets person to person, um, but there can also be airborne transmission. So that means that there are aerosolized droplets that can remain in closed areas. And they can remain in closed areas for up to two hours after an infected person leaves that area. So for example, if someone walks into an elevator uh, mm-hmm. and they have measles, uh, you know, there can be kind of measles and airborne uh, particles for up to two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so for that reason, airborne precautions are, are, are recommended. Um, you know, transmission can occur four days before through four days after rash onset okay. uh, which means that transmission can happen probably before one knows that they're infected since the initial symptoms that prodrome it's yeah. really kind of non-specific it can look like an, uh, any other upper respiratory infection
0: mm. so that makes it very tricky
1: yes mm-hmm. exactly exactly um, for uh, you know control and prevention yeah um, and so uh, if you are you know, in your clinical setting, you have identified uh, a case, you want to make sure that you have airborne precautions until four days after rash onset mm-hmm. because uh, you know, shedding continues for about uh, that length of time. Mm-hmm. And that's for healthy children. If you have an infected uh, child who happens to be immunocompromised, mm-hmm. they're going to shed for a longer period of time. So uh, you are going to want to keep them on airborne precautions um, probably until symptoms resolve. Mm-hmm. Okay, good to know. Uh, and then I think the other important consideration is what you do, um, so if you have an unvaccinated um, you know, child who's exposed to measles, mm-hmm. you'll they'll need to be on airborne precautions from day 5 to 21 after exposure. Okay. Which, of course, and um, if
0: you're unimmunized and you think you were exposed to measles or you happen to in a community where there's a current outbreak, can you get the MMR vaccine sort of as a prophylaxis, but also future protection, obviously? But will it will it work in that immediate, short-term exposure to help prophylax you against getting measles?
1: Uh, absolutely. So if you're able to receive the vaccine, measles vaccine should be given to any susceptible uh, person within 72 hours of exposure. Okay. Um, and and so that will give you enough time to develop your immune response. Mm-hmm. Uh, by by the time measles, the measles virus has had a chance to even replicate and cause infection. Great. So, absolutely. So we
0: can't treat measles, but we can prophylax against it. If you didn't get your MMR already, you, there, it's not too late. If you live in an area you're exposed, you should go get your MMR within 72 hours.
1: Correct. And if you happen to uh, have patients who are not able to receive the MMR vaccine for, for any reason, mm-hmm. uh, they can be given immune globulin, Mm-hmm. Which is essentially, you know, pooled antibodies for protection, um, and that can be given within six days of exposure. Uh, and so, this will not provide, um, you know, long-lasting protection. You're not, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, sparking the individual's own immune system to, right. um, you know, develop memory. Uh, but it will provide short-term protection for that that exposure. Okay. So, this is important for people with severe immunocompromising conditions, for example.
0: Right. So what is the best way for us to test for measles? I know there's an IgM antibody test and a PCR. There's also when we look um, at at how to order, we see serum samples, nasopharyngeal swabs, urine. So tell us what's the best thing, what should we do?
1: Yes, so certainly the easiest test to perform are sending serologies from Mm -hmm. serum. Uh, And so you'd want to, if you're going to do that, you'd want to look for IgM from serum collected while sick Mm -hmm. um, because you should have, you should have circulating IgM antibodies um, yeah. with uh, infection or you can uh, collect both acute and convalescent um, serum and look for an increase in IgG. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that has, that's not as helpful, you know, for your kind of acute decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, so IgM is generally present for around one month. Uh, But you can have false negatives, especially if you test early, within 72 hours of rash onset. Mm -hmm. So if you had a high index of suspicion, you'd probably want to repeat that test. And it's also not likely to be positive in someone who is previously vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it may not be as helpful um, for diagnosis if you suspect measles in a previously vaccinated uh, individual. Uh, So that leaves us with PCR, which is a highly sensitive uh, test. It detects viral uh, RNA. Uh, But... Uh, may not be as readily available, or certainly mm-hmm. to get a results um, quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and this can be sent from urine, blood, throats, or nasopharyngeal swabs. And with a, a throat and nasopharyngeal swabs, I believe are preferred the preferred sample.
0: Right, okay. always easier when you can do something. <laughs> yes, less invasive. Less invasive. That's good to hear. Okay. Um, whenever there is a disease outbreak, those who are immunized may believe that they are safe. However, we know that one dose of the MMR vaccine is approximately 93% effective, and two doses are 97% effective. So there's still anywhere from 3 to 7% of the immunized population who could be at risk. Given that there are some vaccine failures after the first dose that are corrected by the second dose, who should get the second dose earlier, for example, before the age of four, or get a third dose?
1: And so anyone who's going to be in a uh, situation where they're at increased risk of exposure. So for example, if you have a child who will be traveling internationally to a region where there are still men, uh, endemic measles, so perhaps somewhere like uh, the United Kingdom or France or the Philippines, uh, then you'd, uh, you'd want to give them their second dose earlier. Uh, or if a child lives in a community where there is an outbreak, he or she could receive their second dose early. Uh, you just need at least 28 days before the first And second dose. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also give the first dose earlier to infants as young as six months, so between 6 and 11 months of age, Mm -hmm. uh, if they are going to, you know, in an outbreak situation or if they're going to travel to an endemic region.
0: Right. And if you get that, if you're traveling and you get that first dose between 6 and 12 months, you end up getting three doses total, correct?
1: Correct, because you would need to repeat um, that initial dose Mm -hmm. after the age of 12 months.
0: In order to generate long-term immunity, is that
1: right? Um, uh, Correct. The the effectiveness of that that first dose is just uh, uh, greater if you wait until 12 months. And some of that is because of circulating maternal antibodies that can influence um, the long-term response uh, Mm -hmm. to the earlier dose that's been given. Mm
0: -hmm. So we touched on this a little bit earlier, but there's a lot of mythology surrounding the MMR vaccine in the lay press. So for us, what are the side effects of the MMR vaccine that we as pediatricians should be aware of and help educate our patients?
1: So it's really important to emphasize that d- d- despite what many parents may see or what we hear that, that MMR vaccines are, I have an excellent safety profile. I mean, but like any medication, you know, any vaccine can cause some side effects. But these are generally mild and, and self-resolve. Um, and you know, any more significant side effects are, are uncommon. And so, you know, you can tell parents uh, that there's a possibility of fever. Um, though with MMR vaccines, this, these uh, fever tends to occur uh, about 5 to 12 days after vaccine receipt mm-hmm. uh, in about 5 to 15% of, of children. And that's just because of the way the, the you know, this is a live virus vaccine. It's a, mm-hmm. made of a weakened uh, virus. And so there'll be just a little bit of, of viral replication. And so it takes, this is the amount of time it takes for your body to kind of recognize it and start it really it's just related to your your body's immune response mm-hmm. which means that the vaccine is doing its job right um, but it can be anxiety provoking for parents mm-hmm. um, uh, and so and i think it is important to remind parents about the delay in in fever i myself did not remember that when my child got the <laughs> vaccine and at first i don't know is she getting sick but was, that's right it's from around my mom. Um, and and so there's a percentage of children who can develop um, a transient rash that that will go away Mm -hmm. Uh, again probably related to just this kind of low level weakened virus replication Mm -hmm. Um, for young children between the ages of 12 to 23 months uh, there can be a a slightly increased risk of a febrile seizure uh, in about one in three thousand vaccinated kids and rarely you can see transient um, thrombocytopenia Mm -hmm. Um, that can happen. 1 in 25,000 to 1 in 2 million doses. So you can see that that's a very uncommon mm-hmm. um, occurrence. But really, those are the, the you know, known and reported side effects mm-hmm. from MMR vaccines. Great. Okay.
0: So who should not get the MMR vaccine? We talked about it being a live virus vaccine, which makes it a little different than many of the other vaccines we give. So who should not get the MMR?
1: Yes. So uh, because it's a live uh, attenuated virus vaccine, uh, people with severe immunodeficiencies... Um, should not receive the, the vaccine, and that's because for people with weak a weakened immune uh, system, they could develop an infection from the weakened virus, mm-hmm. a weakened viral strain. Uh, so that's the, that's the biggest contraindication mm-hmm. um, to the receipt of MMR vaccines. Uh, you know, Any live attenuated vaccine also should not be given to pregnant women, and that's due to the potential risk for transmitting a weakened vaccine virus to the, the fetus. Mm-hmm. Um, though there have not been any reports of fetal infection in cases where a, a live virus vaccine was inadvertently given to a pregnant woman. And then lastly, and this is the same really for any vaccine, that if there's a history of a severe allergic response, um, to a prior dose of MMR mm-hmm. um, uh, withhold vac- vaccination or a contraindication.
0: Great. And as a follow up to that question, is it okay to give the MMR vaccine to a patient who has a pregnant or immunocompromised parent? So sometimes we'll see parents who are pregnant when they come in for this um, vaccine with their child or who um, might be on chemo or something like that. So, can their child get the MMR vaccine?
1: So yes, they can, and that is that is because just as we were talking about earlier, that it, when you are vaccinated, you are not shedding uh, the vaccine virus. So that that's what you worry about. You 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 worry about a vaccinated individual then shedding mm-hmm. uh, the vaccine virus, but that does not occur with MMR. So great, good to know.
0: Many think a vocal anti-vaccine movement is responsible for low immunization rates in certain communities, and we talked about this as potential um, for what happened in Minnesota. As pediatricians, how can we best advocate for adherence to the CDC immunization schedule in vaccine-hesitant families?
1: Yeah, so vaccine hesitancy is is a challenging issue for pediatricians because it can be related to a range of beliefs and other factors as we were talking about a little bit earlier, Mm -hmm. including perhaps low perceived risk for vaccine-preventable diseases like measles. So, you know, MMR may not be considered um, uh, necessary um, or uh, important. Uh, and, And then there, of course, are vaccine safety concerns, especially for MMR. Uh, and so, you know, I think we're continuing to learn more about the most effective way to address hesitancy, um, but I think for, as, as providers, you know, provider recommendation is probably one of the most important uh, factors. It's It's been identified really as one of the most important predictors of vaccine uh, uptake and acceptance. So making a strong recommendation uh, is key, and it communicates your confidence in vaccination mm-hmm. and your belief in their importance for uh, their child's health. Uh, I think it's important to listen uh, to concerns and questions, and, and and really doing what we can to remain informed so that we can uh, effectively uh, and confidently answer questions. Uh, and I think that we can also help provide some context for vaccine safety concerns. You know, to talk about, um, you know, this is this is the you know the risk for, um, you know, a vaccine side effect. This is the risk for, uh, you know, you know what could happen if you you know, like a motor vehicle accident or, other, you know, other things that, that are related right. to what people do every day. Right. And I think it's important to sometimes remember uh, that as, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's hard. You know, children get vaccines when they're healthy. And so mm-hmm. I think any risk can be hard for parents to take mm-hmm. sometimes. But yeah. context helps. And then sharing our own experience, talking about what we may do with our own, you know, family members um, mm-hmm. yeah. is
0: important. I agree. I mean, riding an escalator can be dangerous, yeah. as I found out when you go to the mall. But I still do go to the mall and ride escalators (laughs) but you have to um come up with a way to do it safely and so i think like you said just educating families about what is this the the risk of vaccines and knowing that these risks are very small and what they're preventing and how serious those diseases can be and that they are real threats even though we don't see them a lot um which thankfully we don't in the u.s anymore but they do still pop up like you mentioned because we are a global community and mm-hmm. so there's always going to be new cases
1: absolutely and the reason we don't see cases is because we've been able to maintain high immunization rates that, that is a benefit of vaccination i think it's so important to mm-hmm. uh, emphasize and and also that we do many many things to keep ourselves safe every day you mm-hmm. know we wearing seat belts right by um, yes exactly and mm-hmm. this is an- another important mm-hmm. strategy to keep our kids and communities safe
0: and like you said, I think that there are some very loud anti-vaccine voices out there, but the relationship that patients have with their pediatrician is often very powerful voice as well. So even though you are one voice, I think it's, a, it's one that, in general, your patients respect the opinion of. And so speaking openly and honestly about your, your feelings on this topic is important. Yes, absolutely. So, on that kind of theme, should practices exclude unimmunized patients from their practice to protect their most vulnerable patients? I mean, this is a hot topic I think that comes up a lot that we hear, and some practices are afraid well, what about my neonates? What about my um, kids who are on chemotherapy and, and have immunodeficiencies? And um, having this anti vaccine population in my practice could hurt those, those patients. So, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, this is really a, a tough, tough, uh, you know, dilemma, I, um, you know, because I think, as you mentioned, pediatricians have a relationship with mm-hmm. the families that they see that's, you know, built on, uh, on trust, and they're providing a range of services, healthcare services to, um, to their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it does pose a dilemma to pediatricians who you really want to maintain a relationship with uh, their families so that mm-hmm. they can continue to provide care to their child, um, but, you know, really may not feel comfortable being asked to... Um, you know not provide an intervention that they consider you know you a know, standard of care important for that individual child including um, their uh, concerns about other patients in uh, their practice um, and so you're kind of weighing the um, you know your you know even kind of your ethical beliefs mm-hmm. and you know the, the oaths that we um, you know have taken um, mm-hmm. to first do no harm right. um, for that patient and others um, and then also wanting to be, uh, you know, respectful of um, our, the, you know, the family's beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I think for many parents, a decision to delay or refuse a vaccine is is based upon misperceptions or concerns, and, and these can be it could be effectively addressed. And a trusting relationship is part of effective messaging. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I do think it's. A, important that we try to do as much as we can mm-hmm. to uh, address those and, and move a family to um, acceptance. But I think if vaccine refusal really begins to affect this relationship uh, and influences the ability to provide care uh, in general, um, and then you know at, at that point, I think that providers can consider referring a family um, elsewhere because it's going to be so hard for you to mm-hmm. provide the care that you want to provide right. um, and to take care of all of your patients mm-hmm. um, but you know I think whatever the approach, I really think it's also important to communicate with parents upfront what your practices policy is related to immunizations mm-hmm. you know the, the importance that you may place upon them that you are um, you know you have a policy that's based on providing the best care that you can for their child you know mm-hmm. that you're doing what you know how to do to protect their child's health but also for mm-hmm. uh, the practice community and I, I do think that if a family knows that upfront that can help mm-hmm. as, as well.
0: I think it's important they know the practice's belief and then their provider's belief because in some practices there might be a discrepancy there too so just knowing that you're the right fit for that physician or, um, or other clinician and making sure that you're, you're in the right practice too as it, on the patient side of it. Um, so this is a very hot topic, a very emotional topic for many so thanks for taking all of that on. I'm going to put on our site some resources for people, including the CDC uh, website on measles and the CHOP vaccine education center site on the MMR vaccine, which has a lot of good answers for people who are coming up against vaccine hesitant parents. Um, So any other resources that you would include on that?
1: I, I think that these are two excellent uh, places to uh, to start, certainly. Uh, the Immunization Action Coalition also has some excellent resources for um, for providers as Great. well. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yes. You're very welcome. Thank Thanks. you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.